little bit of inside baseball for you, or probably better put, inside podcasting. The way that these shows appear in the final cut is often not the way that they appear in, in the actual recording. For example, I like to try to keep the interviews all together the way that they were, but sometimes you come up with a genius question or the guest comes up with a genius answer 10 seconds too late. So you just swap some things around and move something from beginning to end so that it ends up making the most sense and is the most entertaining. But what almost invariably happens all the time is that this segment right here, the intro to the entire thing, is the last thing that I record. It's the last thing that I do generally. And normally it happens on like the Monday or Tuesday right before I release it on Wednesday. And it almost absolutely all the time, 100% is done right after I finish a ride. I don't know why. Maybe it's because blood is actually flowing to my brain or I spent the last 45 minutes of the ride trying to be witty and funny to myself in a way that entertains me and makes the miles go by, but I come up with a lot of great ideas in that moment, put the bike up, run upstairs to the studio, throw this, the headphones on, start talking. This particular episode is contrary to that rule. This intro is actually being recorded before I'm done with all the other editing. Simple reason, I'm really pushing the technological limits of my knowledge and ability here with this episode. That's not to say that I've been technologically comfortable and competent in everything that I've done before. In fact, the reality is that most of the time I'm pushing my limits here and I'm learning constantly. This episode started back in October, uh, November of this year when I started talking to Dylan and Zach Allison and the rest of the guys on Team Cliff Bar. It evolved over time. We threw around outlines and edits and ideas and more phone calls than normally happens in some of my paying job sort of stuff. But the end result is this great compilation of audio from four different guys on the team. Connor and Kevin Mullervy, affectionately known as the Gingers, identical twins who have ginger hair, Zach Allison and Chris Stewart. And it's taken a long time to put it together because when you got done with it, you had three and a half hours, almost four hours maybe, worth of audio, worth of stories, worth of great moments in time. And I just couldn't present four hours of audio to you guys. So I had to start cutting and start removing things. But I haven't finished yet. I just haven't. But because of the technological limits that I've got, I've got to record this stuff first and then start slotting other things in. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. I feel like the outtakes of this episode are going to be just as entertaining as the stuff that makes the final cut. For example, this amazing story about how Kevin Mullervy forgot his fork on his way on his way to Westchester two years ago and spent the entire day before the race hunting around bins in bike shops in eastern Pennsylvania only to discover a CAD 9 fork that he was able to throw on his bike and test out on the first couple of laps of the race. Or another time that... Kevin and Connor decided to play Parent Trap when they were racing in China. The Ginger Twins, identical twins, you can't tell the difference between them except for what helmet they're wearing. And they decided to swap helmets on the final day and took advantage of the confusion so that one of them could end up winning and the other one just rolled in the field, the marked man who shouldn't have been the marked man. We have this wonderful conversation about Fruit of Colorado clearly a mythical place, about pictures of bighorn sheep. I also had the opportunity to talk to Connor twice because there was a problem with the audio recording the first time. But in doing it, I got the wonderful opportunity to have an hour-long chat with him while he was wearing a Christmas sweater suit that was bright red in color and looked like a Christmas present. It was purely magical.
There are, are literally 35 or 40 minutes of Chris Stewart talking about gravel and how much he loves it in the event that he's going to try to put on this year. And then there's 30 minutes or so of Zach Allison philosophizing about bike racing. If you know Zach, you can just picture it. Cognac in hand, smoking jacket, the rich mahogany smell of the library that he's in, and a long pipe just telling you volumes of knowledge about bike racing. These are the things that we couldn't air because there was so much else that was good stuff. I had to leave out the part about how almost everybody on this team has a nickname, that there's a guy named Thor. And I didn't know what his real name was, but I had to go and look throughout the team roster. And sure enough, he looks like Thor, the God of Thunder. This is such a rich team, such a team full of characters and people who you want to be friends with. And the great thing about it is they want to be friends with you. They want you to come up to them after the race and talk to them. They want you to join them at the communal table, you know, at the Iron Hill Brewery after Westchester and share stories. And it's a team that's open about what they want to accomplish and how they're going to get there. So much self-awareness, so much knowledge, so much fun. A lot of things got cut, but one thing that continues to come up time and time again is one person's name, Dylan, their director sportive. Dylan didn't want to appear on this episode because he doesn't want to talk for his guys. He wants his guys to talk for themselves and act for themselves. And it is the consummate behind-the-scenes manager that is probably why this team is so successful. He does the hard, heavy lifting behind the scenes, gets things organized so that these guys can excel and succeed and use the resources that have been provided to them to do the best job that they possibly can do. I know I normally say this at the end, but I want to say it here at the beginning. Thank you, Dylan, for all the hard work that you did in helping me put this episode together, and I hope that you guys enjoy it. Before we get into the episode and talking about hard work, let's talk about the Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows, the world's only top-tier collection of independent cycling content out there. We've got a full bevy of shows that you can find out about at WideAnglePodium.com. We've got a YouTube channel where Bill Scheiken and Matt Little Guy Allen are churning out incredible content. Please do consider becoming a member of the network and supporting this content creator-owned effort. We really appreciate it. Without further ado, the first voices you're going to hear, Zach Allison and Kevin Mullock. One thing that I love about Cliff Bar and with your team is this like concept of self-awareness that the team has. It knows one its place within the domestic professional elite amateur scene, but it also wants to excel at that place. So something that, you know, your your director sportive Dylan and I talked about and that you and I have talked about is this concept of what it means to actually be professional. And I think you've defined it in the past as being somebody who can make a living doing bikes as opposed to making a living at doing bikes plus about 500 other things that a lot of the folks in the domestic scene have to do. My understanding is Cliff Bar is very comfortable with saying, we aren't pros, but we're going to race against the best pros in the country and we're going to take it to them. Yeah, I kind of equate it similarly to like the American dream in a way <laughs> in general, like for millennials or whatever post greatest generation, like the American dream is kind of like, how do you want to make your own? How do you want to find your own way? And that's kind of domestic cycling. There's not a funnel for how you're going to just have a job and be a bike racer solely as your only position. Every pro, every UCI pro that's not paid is very quick to point fingers at who's pro and who's not because they have a UCI license and no paycheck and they're pro. And then every one that's in the industry doesn't really talk about it much because they're comfortable and they're working for money in the industry, however they're making their way. In the case of racing, like 
it all comes down to that race that day where you are. Domestic racing in the U.S., especially Criteriums, is at a spot where it's a pro one or a pro one two race. So you can sit there and sort of point fingers at who's making a living, who's not, and who's paid and who's not, and what your UCI license says. Um, and then if you get beat, like you're not up for re-election, you know, like your job is on the line. But for Cliff Bar, I give Dylan a lot of credit, but like there's eight different guys that were on pro teams. The Malervies were on Exergy and Champsis. Chris Stewart was on Exergy. Like there's guys that were on legit teams and we all sort of, I don't think anyone would say step down to Cliff Bar at all. Like, yeah, it's not a UCI pro team, but we race at a super high level and we love what we do. And it's like kind of more support for uh, less bureaucracy than a lot of the pro teams were that I was on. So um, I love being on Cliff Bar and it's a great spot. You know, a lot of us sit here and say that the dream is to get great, become a cat one, get your contract, go off to Belgium. But that's not the ethos of Cliff Bar. And I don't think that's the ethos that we as Americans necessarily have to, you know, indulge in. We've got this race scene here in the United States. We've got this criterium scene, which is not unique, but is definitely focused heavily on America. And you guys have bought into that. You've bought into the fact that it doesn't matter where the crit is, you're going to show up and you're going to do it and you're going to race it like a group of, of guys who are possessed with the dream of winning that specific race. I agree. And I think it's kind of possessed by fun. And then when you're having a lot of fun, that sort of oozes out to the spectators and everyone can see that you're a positive light and you just are there doing what you love. And that's different than, you know, guys that have to compromise on doing stuff that's less fun, but it's more of a job. But even at the highest level, the racers that are still able to sort of make it fun and and are enjoy getting paid to do what they love are the most successful ones. Have you ever lost the focus on the I'm having fun and I'm an entertainer part of it as far as your role with with the team? Not in Cliff Bar, not at all. I think we all keep ourselves uh, in check. <laughs> there's, I mean, there's been times when guys get really, really serious and like we sort of make fun of them until they break and then realize that we're all trying out here <laughs> to have fun, which I think is great. That's a, like not a, the team ethos isn't that and the and the team sponsorship doesn't rely on us getting results. I think that's where ironically you start to lose results and you start to lose good riders and you start to lose a lot of this stuff is you have your team ethos degrades into sponsors want to see this or team directors want to see this. And if you don't do that, then what is your actual role? And that's just how you drive people away. So, I mean, on Cliff Bar, we have a, we have an ethos and we have a set of rules that we live by. And like the first one is have fun and be teammates. And a big part of that is representing Cliff Bar well. And those are, those are our goals and they're easy to check off. And when you meet your goals, it's really easy to, to then shoot for something else. But as long as we're representing our sponsors well and like trying to better cycling and get more fans out there and get more people on bikes, we've already won. You can't just walk away and say it's not a serious team or it's not a good team. You guys are the 2018 USA Crits team champs. You go to the biggest crits in the country. You're not afraid to mix it up with PRT, you know, UCI, Conti Pro teams. Yeah, I hate using it, but I mean, it really is a family. Like, we just have fun. So everybody on the team has a full-time job outside of bike racing. Like, we don't pretend that we're professionals. Like, we race at the pro level, but uh, we're just out there having fun. We love cycling. We love racing. We love interacting with fans um, and just traveling the U.S. to these these cities. But I think the unique thing is... We're racing at a high level, but we don't have the pressure, external pressure from management or sponsors to get a result. That's part of the motto. If we get a result, that's awesome. Like that's a cherry on top. But uh, we just want to go to the races, make our sponsors proud, interact with the fans. We want a fan to be able to come up to us and ask us like any question about bike racing. I mean, I think there's a lot of introverts and cycling and people are hard to hold a conversation. So if a young kid can come up and talk to us about bike racing, 
I think that that's a win in itself and we can get them excited about racing in the U S or wherever they want, uh, or just get them on a bike, not even racing, but just getting out and having an active lifestyle is uh, something unique about this team. The foundation of the team is that we, we should look and act apart as though we're trying to get people to think that cycling's cool and, and become in the sport of cycling. There's a lot of really, really good racers that think that results sort of do that and they don't like you can get results and be known for douchebaggery and really drive people out of the sport so i think that in general the foundation and like to get on cliff bar you kind of have to be friendly and personable and get along with other people and get along with the team and be good for sport in general And now Chris Stewart. Yeah. And it's, I mean, really that's another thing about Cliff. It's not all about the results. It's actually making that community connection uh, more than really the results out there, which Dylan was pretty adamant about because I was hounding him up at first about like, you know, maybe I'm not the guy that's going to be winning these races, but I can, I have the experience to help some of these guys get closer to winning these races. And Dylan was like, but what about like working with the kids at Athens before on the pump track, you know, just shaking hands with people after the event or the last lap of Tulsa night one, when people are just watch the firework and you're just high fiving everybody. I mean, it's, he's just like, that's that those experiences are almost more or they are more than the result. One of the things that you and I have talked about a lot is this idea of getting onto a team and what that means for a rider. Is the team there for the rider? Is the rider there for the team? Is this a status symbol now that you've made it to this level? Getting this spot on Cliff Bar that you've had for years now, what does that mean to you as compared to what does it mean to the team to have you as a part of it? When I was looking for a team after my time at Elevate, I called Dylan and I was referred to Dylan from Kevin Malervi and Connor. And they were friends of mine and they're great guys. And Kevin was already on Cliff Bar and Connor was getting done with a stint on an Australian team for GPM. I called Dylan not knowing what I was in for, um, but I knew that I was fast enough to race for Cliff Bar. But sort of the interview questions that Dylan brings on are not what you expect. It's not really about your Palmars or your results. It's really based on who you are. Are you going to be a good ambassador for Cliff Bar and all the other sponsors combined? Are you a reasonable person? Can you hold a conversation? Are you good for cycling and are you good for sport? And so that's what makes Cliff Bar's story of actually getting decent results and being fast, I think, more interesting. Dylan wasn't going down the list of USA crit results and handpicking guys. And sort of you hear these directors being like, I want that guy. I want that guy. It's Moneyball, And these guys get results. Dylan is, you know, following up with mutual friends and people that we all know to see if someone's going to work out on the team from a personality and a character standpoint and less so from a result standpoint. And so it just happened out that, we all happen to be really fast and really good teammates to each other and have the ability to get results in the end. You're going from the biggest crits in the United States to the next biggest crit in the United States. And that requires money, that requires time, that requires effort. You, most of you guys are based in the Mountain West. What is it about these criteriums that make it worth traveling from from Fort Collins or from Boise to... Spartanburg or to Manhattan Beach or to Harlem, like these are not close to you at all. You named the probably the three hardest races to get to from the Mountain West. But I would say in general, the travel is easier than you think, especially with how we've modeled out how to travel. Denver is my home airport and like I can fly to either coast for like 60 bucks, not even in COVID times not on frontier even. So like the travel is easier than you think if you plan your infrastructure wisely and you have budget for this, this, and this, and you have, you know, someone booking flights with enough time or, or your riders are booking flights enough time out to keep it cheap. 
the thing that makes it worthwhile overall, I think, is the entire USA, USA Crit story. It's really hard to make a coherent story all the way through of a Criterium season. In the past, it's been a lot of teams trying to tell their own story of each separate season that they have or each team's separate season. And it just kind of gets people to maybe follow that one team at a time. USA Chris kind of tells this whole season story of inter-team battles, inter-Jersey battles, the overall winner, overall team, all these different stories that are all televised along the way. And then content produced from that, I think is really what makes it worthwhile for us to target that series for an entire season. What's weird about bike racing, and I think that of all the people in bike racing that I know, you're probably one of the best people to answer this, is this idea that we talk exclusively about the individual. We talk about, you know, the guy who wins the sprint. The part of this question that I think becomes interesting is individual, 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 but that's not what Cliff Bar is focused on. Cliff Bar is focused on team Cliff Bar getting one of its riders into the breakaway and to the line first. Yeah, and I think we are going to amplify that tactic in 2020. There are, especially with Legion being a very dominant lead-out team, um, and I did a, a podcast with Trainer Road at the very beginning of the season that lays out how cool it would have been if we had got to race against each other a bunch. But we do race as a team really well. But when we're racing as a team, our tactic is generally to send guys up the road um, and be really aggressive. It's more fun to watch. It would take a ton of time and work to become a lead out team um, that could fight Legion. And that's not really what we're interested in. It's a good thing that Owen is a really good pack sprinter on his own. Um, so we kind of have that ace in the hole. And just the type of riders that we are as a team are mostly really punchy, really fast breakaway riders. We've won El Paso. We've won really hard races, a couple of the Arkansas series, San Rafael Twilight. Over the years, these races that we're winning are usually like really hard and not field sprint races. So our tactic for 2020 was going to kind of double down on that race as a team by throwing guys up the road, knowing that we're better in technical courses and we're better at the last 10 laps of the race than even Legion combined, I don't think could have handled necessarily massive bombs thrown up the road. It was going to be cool in 2020. We'll see what happens in 2021, but um, hopefully we'll, we'll get a chance to enact some of these really aggressive team tactics. How much of that strategy? Let's throw people up the road. Let's, let's break the race apart. Let's make people come after us is born out of the fact that team cliff bar is putting itself there up against the elevate webplexes, the legions, the rallies, UHCs of old, you know, where you guys were the scrappy underdog. This tactic hasn't come about from lack of resources as much as who has happened to be on the team at the time. Like we were talking about where we're not going down the line and just picking guys to get results from people that are already on the top. Like we're picking guys to be good characters that all get along on a team because we all have to travel together and we all have roles outside of that, you know, 90 minute or 100K crit. Who happens to be on the team is really more of the outcome of where we're going to get these tactics. So like if you look at all the most of the results that Kevin Malervi has, not to give away his secret, but he's nearly a specialist in the late race inside of five laps to go attack that stays. He's done it at Athens and he's won Athens nearly every race where it's really, really hard, really, really technical. You'll see Kevin with a certain gap off the front in the last five laps. That's a huge asset. It's an asset to Owen. If it's going to come down to a field sprint, then everyone's going to be tired. If no one's tired because they didn't pull Kevin back, then Kevin wins. And so if we can do that Malervi tactic with four guys in the last 12 laps, that's where you start busting lead out trains. Since Zach brought up the Kevin Mullervy tactic, we have to know what Kevin's got to say about this exact same thing. It's based off the team and riders that you have. Like Legion has a sprint squad. So, of course, they're going to want to line it up and 
they're very, very good at it and successful at it. And they have the results to back it up. And us as team cliff bar, like we're not a sprint squad and we have more breakaway riders. That's just the way that we like to ride and be super aggressive. I always like to tell people like if I was watching the race, I want to be that type of racer that gets excited because it's, it's exciting to see a sprint train go to the line and you see a guy post up, but as a fan, I think that gets kind of boring. Like the race plays out, the breakaway goes, they bring them back, and that's the end of it. But to be almost like the underdog going for the breakaway and trying to trying to sneak away from those big teams like Legion or Butcher Box where they're more successful at a sprint. Yeah, it's just more exciting to watch a race like, oh, this guy might hold it to the line. Like he might outsmart the sprint trains. He's going to stay out just at the the end of it, the last corner and stay away. But I think for like Cliff Bar, a successful thing for a race is going into it and just racing the way we want to race. For me, like if I go to a race, I guarantee you I'm going for the breakaway every race. Like there's no race where I'm going to win a field sprint. Like no way. I'm always going to be looking for a breakaway um, or just animating the race in any way possible. I'm never going to be sitting back for an hour and a half. I mean, I've been in racing long enough that I know I don't want to be the last 10 laps at the front. Like I know how aggressive Talk that is that. and like, sketchy give it is. Me so some advice. if I can get my job or done or give before anybody them, who races like super successful, me some so. advice, because you and I are guys that will never win sprints. I mean, we may win a two up sprint or a three up sprint, but like if it's 50 guys going to the line at Somerville, I might as well be in the parking lot at that point in time. Yet you see so many people just like five laps ago, I'm resigned to myself that this is just going to be a, a top 25 day. I personally, and I know my results don't necessarily bear this out, but I personally would rather be DNF or DFL uh, than 30th. You know, I would like to take a shot at winning a race and I'm willing to lose in order to take that shot. Now, it sounds like that is what Cliff Bar is all about. So how how do you do it? I mean, you are famous for yep, the last totally 5K yeah. or 10K breakaway. Yeah, I mean, I think you I think you set that up perfectly. Like, yeah, I'm never going to be at the end of end of a race 10 laps to go lining it up for a sprint. So, in my head, I'm like my end of the race is before 10 laps to go. If I'm not off the front in a breakaway um and there's 10 laps to go, then I need to give it a shot again. Like, there's so many racers at this level that we come down to 10 laps to go and we're like up oh, the sprint teams haven't lined up that's the end of our race 98 percent of the time that's probably true that's the end of the race but yeah i love giving like last lap flyers five laps to go flyers to throw those teams off because they're so used to like all the other teams just sitting back and letting them do their thing so say there's 10 laps to go at athens twilight or any of these usa crits and i've already played all the flyers all day trying to get in a breakaway to stick um it just didn't work so maybe there's 10 laps to go and i give it one last go and it, it may not play out for me but i'm gonna burn a match for one of these lead out team guys so they're gonna have to dig a little bit harder now that there's one rider off the front where they were ready to just settle into 10 laps to go and use their energy that way but if we send a guy off ooh, they're gonna freak out burn a match, burn a rider, and then maybe that will play into our hand. But yeah, like you said, if it doesn't work out one one week, I mean, we're going to the next race doing the same thing, just being super aggressive. So Chris Stewart, obviously Cliff has a huge tradition of winning, but I don't feel like that is the model of success that you guys are selling to Envy, Vinyl, Sierra Nevada. What do you think it is aside from just pure results that makes a program successful? I think it's just that we're a part of the community. We're not anything unreachable. We're just 
bike racers doing the exact same thing. So if people can strive to be like us, then they can get to the USA crits or they can become the new us, you know, like if you go down to a, a twilight criterium and you, you watch it for the first time and you meet one of us, you can actually start riding your bike and do maybe the cat four race and then work your way up. And I think the U S sponsors see that and how we're so reachable to the general public, how we can steer them in a way to help them become cyclists for a lifetime. Is it important to you to be on a team that wins more than it is to be on a team that has this sense of brotherhood? I mean, winning is awesome, but there's only one winner. Cycling is, it's a bunch of losers. I mean, 120 dudes show up, there's only one winner. Same time you roll up with five of your best buddies and at the end of the night, you're still going to be best buddies. Like that, I mean, this team is so tight. Zach, what does it mean to have a successful organization? I look at cycling like I'll look at the other ball sports, for example, like football or baseball. And you look at a team like, you know, the New England Patriots or the New York Yankees. And this is where I'm going to get hate mail, but I'm just going to go there anyways. These teams outside of their core group of fans are universally hated, but they have these incredible past. Yankees have won more World Series than any other team in baseball. The Patriots were unstoppable for a decade plus. In cycling, we do have teams and we do have individuals who are unstoppable for a period of time, but a team can't identify simply as we won every single crit in one year and continue to be viable. You've got to have the Chicago Cubs, you know, the lovable loser growing up in Chicago. That was affectionate way of, of referring to them. But you've got these teams that are beloved and people flock to them and they they buy the beer that's sold at the stadium. They wear the merchandise. You know, that's what I seem to see when I see success is people from a wide part of society embracing your team as opposed to, you know, just caring about you if you win or lose. Yeah. I think that's this is one place where cycling is really broken. You can follow a team and get attached to a team. And even on a real, even on the highest domestic professional level, a team like Hincapie or rally no offense to these teams, but most of their followers come from the amount of host houses that they get in a given year. And those host houses become fans of that team. It's unfollowable. Um, it's not by region. You can't be proud of the region you grew up in that has a ball, a ball team. You can't get proud of a cycling team that is just made up of sponsors or in Elevate's case, a small loan company. Like you can't necessarily be proud of these teams and follow them in the same way. And maybe by the time a team gets a following, the title sponsor changes and the colors change and the whole kit changes. So I don't have an answer to that one other than there needs to be a fundamental change in coverage and a fundamental change in coherency of teams, whether it's regionality um, this is a question for, for USAC or UCI, but even on a world tour level, this is an issue, you know, like how many team sky fans just watched one race a year, be it the tour de France or another grand tour. And then team sky is gone and people don't know what happened to it. They don't know it turned into Ineos. They don't know what happened to whatever team. If, if that's the case on the world tour level, um, then it's tenfold on a domestic level where we're already in a fringe sport. So one of the things uh, about a long-term relationship is that it is long-term on both sides. So obviously Dylan, you know, we, we probably should just name this episode Dylan and, and, you know, cause of the importance of him for the organization, but it's not just about him. It also has to be about uh, maintaining a continuity of the roster so, you know, Connor and Kevin and you and, and, and Chris and Owen and everybody who's on the team, the goal is to keep those people 
on the team. And in a sport where we see so much movement year to year from personnel, what is it about your organization that you guys can create these long-term bonds between folks who don't like live next door to each other? Ah, uh, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know. In, in all the teams I've been on, Cliff Bar is definitely an anomaly in that sense of like the first year I was on the team, I, I had no idea what to expect. And I came from a more negative team environment, I would say. So like, I'm like a more outgoing person. So I'm not like just keeping to myself or like all business and all training and all that. Like I'm going to roll with the vibe of the team, but the vibe of the team is more of a family and your characters are already like checked at the door and we're all going to get along as a start. And then like, we all kind of have a say in a way of who gets on the team too. So like if, you know, Dylan's considering someone for the roster or a lot of the guys, you know, really want someone on the team. We kind of know that we've all agreed that, you know, this is a cool person. They're going to fit and they're really fast and we think they should be here. So it's kind of like from the start, a lot of trust. And then once you're on the team, it's like you're kind of family in a way. Bike racers, a lot of us have some pretty big egos. Uh, and we have some very large ambitions, especially in the criterium world where it's a fast, high intensity, high impact sport where people bounce off each other all the time, uh, both physically and kind of mentally, emotionally, you know, how do you make sure that these egos, this attitude, this aggression gets used or harnessed in an appropriate way as opposed to, you know, sucking away. Cause we've seen so many teams where you collect these great people. We all talk about being a family and being brothers or sisters. And then all of a sudden, you know, four races into the season, somebody didn't lead somebody out correctly. And now it starts to snipe at each other in the parking garage, et cetera, et cetera. I think a lot of that animosity or bouncing off each other or fights and things like that kind of come from team infighting out of fear, fear that you're not going to get a roster spot the next year or the next race, fear that you're not going to get paid as much the next year, fear that you're going to be off the team or that you're going to be replaced. So <clears throat> I think a lot of that on Cliff Bar, we just don't have to deal with because we're not, we're not results based off the bat. So if there's someone that won USA crits overall, and they really, really, really want to be on Cliff Bar, maybe there would be an extra spot that would open up, but we would not tell someone else to leave for that person to join Cliff Bar because that's not our MO. That's just not how we do it. And then if that started happening, then maybe that would lead to people, you know, really feeling like they're going to get left behind and then they need to get a result. And then they're mad that they didn't get let out and all the stuff that you're kind of talking about. But like I said, as long as we, you know, are stand-up guys and we're ambassadors to cycling and sport and cliff bar, then we've already won. It's really nice. Like it's it's really refreshing. And honestly, it's kind of what creates our ability to get good results is we're not stressed, we're having a good time, and then we can ride as a team and no one is at each other's at each other's throat because you're not competing with your own teammates for a roster spot. Why do we in America love our criteriums? It's high energy. It's dynamic. Things are always changing, going off the front, coming off the back. You know, it's, it's crazy. Rex, going into the pit, checking yourself out, making sure your uh, kit's still somewhat in one piece and you're not showing the whole nation what's going on down there and jumping back on your bike and going back out there and trying to finish. There's one thing to go to your local criterium, you know, your local training race or whatever it happens to be. It is an entirely different universe to pack your bike onto a plane, go to Spartanburg, go to Athens. That requires a level of commitment that I think most normal human beings would sit there and go, yeah, no, no. Why? Why are you so passionate about it? 
I think it it starts at the start line when you just hear the crowd going, the announcer calling your your name up or your teammate's name up and they're giving that countdown and you just hear the crowd roaring. I mean, it is just insane. And then it lasts the entire race. One of the first times I did Boise Twilight forever ago, it seems like now they used to have these clickers that they gave out to the whole crowd and that's all you could hear for 90 minutes. It's just that clicking sound, but it just became that noise, the whole race plus cheering. And it just, it's, it gives me goosebumps right now just thinking about it and makes me want to go race my bike. So Connor Mullervy, how much of racing for you is fan participation? How much of your enthusiasm and motivation to do what you do and to entertain comes from having USA Crits crowd there at night on a Saturday night. You know, how much of this sport is owed to the fans? I'd say at least 90% of it. So, um, like, you go to some of these big crits and there's thousands and thousands of people there. Like, uh, your heart rate can be maxed and you can't even hear yourself breathe and you can't even hear yourself uh, shifting the bike. To be in that kind of atmosphere, like, you can push yourself a little harder when you got people just screaming at the top of their lungs, like banging on the barriers. You're going to dig a little deeper, just, uh, you know, hold out for another lap or two. And, um, I think it's really special what USA crits has done over the years. And we go to some incredible towns and that really get behind these crits, which is really, really cool. I don't think there's anywhere else in the world that has something like this set up for communities and like towns. I mean, Tulsa tough, like, take Mondays off I think it's like the biggest event in Tulsa. Like they're so excited to get that, that race there. And that also excites the racers. Like uh, that's one of the best races on the calendar and to have us and the fans super excited about event. Like, I feel like that's just like a perfect combination. One thing that, that dawns on me about criterium racing versus the more antiseptic version of road racing, you know, the grand tours or, you know, even one day, even one day classics is this idea of the intensity of corner to corner action. When you listen to the Phil's and Paul's of the world who are doing commentating on, on events, it's always like the brakes only got 10 seconds. They're going to get caught even in a tour stage where they're just like, oh, the brakes got five minutes on the field over 20K, like that's going to get caught. You get five minutes in a crit, you've lapped a field. With a criterium, a 10 second gap can one be held for a very, very long time and can actually lead to a win. How much of crit racing is about those small seconds, those small gaps, those small moments. Yeah, I mean, you put a uh, you put a hundred, hundred and thirty uh, riders on a small circuit like that. I mean, there's not much room to move up. Like, um, depending on how technical the course is, like you're going corner to corner, full gas, and the front of the peloton to do thirty, and you're in the middle of the peloton. You got to be going quite a bit faster to try to even move up to the, before the next corner. So. When, when I'm off the road in a breakaway and I hear 10 seconds, like that's, that's gold. Like that's what I want to hear. I mean, if you watch the tour de France, you hear 10 seconds, you're like, where are they wasting their time for? Um, but with like how technical a, a crit is like, uh, 10 seconds could, uh, win you a race, like, um, you're constantly turning, you got teams and, but in order to get a full team to the front on a technical course, like that's pretty difficult. Like there is a, I mean, obviously it's done. A lot of teams do it and make it happen, but like in crunch time, say there's a dangerous break up the road. It's going to take a while before you have a full team assembled to pull that, that 10 seconds back. I mean, you get out of sight so quick on some of these twilight crits and I mean, out of sight, out of mind is what they say. So it's a lot easier to do that on a crit than say a hundred mile road race. What about when you crack open a Sierra Nevada after the race? Or a picture of Sierra Nevada after the race with some of the folks who are there. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, we're out there to race bikes and go fast. And we also like to have a lot of fun to be able to have a sponsor like Sierra Nevada and just be able to enjoy a cold beer with one of the fans after the race. I feel like that's memorable for us. But like some of these fans, that's that's like, I mean, you can't do that any any other sport and event. You're not going to go up to some team and have a beer with them after the race. And I mean, it's pretty funny. Uh, 
we'll be we'll be in the most pain of our lives with three laps to go and uh dylan will come on the radio and let us know what corner he's at with the the cold beers to to enjoy after the race (laughs) yeah to have a sponsor like that is um I definitely don't take it for granted. Well, I'll tell you straight up, Zach Allison, my experience with Cliff Bar comes from what happens post-race, where you guys do get together, and you do let loose, and you do have the occasional pint or mug of beer, and you know the, the table is filled with food, and you don't care who comes over and and in, indulges or introduces themselves he, it's like this open book of like hey we're team cliff bar come have some fun with us yeah i think i think that's pivotal like if you're not you know maybe maybe if you're world tour and you have to focus so much on on whatever to get your result and you have to have 10 and a half hours of sleep then i get why you would be more recluse but i think for the good of cycling especially domestically, like this is how people get into cycling. Like when I was a kid, it was me looking up to the super fast guys at the CSE Invitational, which is now Clarendon Cup. You can tell the guys that are intimidating that like maybe aren't having a good time or whatever. And it's just not who you want to be around. And it doesn't make you really want to get into cycling. It's really, really easy for us to all have a good time when we're together and hanging out and and having a Sierra Nevada after a race. We're definitely, I would say, just as good at uh, post-race as in-race, at least at least as good. You don't know this because you're not Zach Allison, <laughs> but... <laughs> I wish. Zach and I had this exact same conversation about a year ago when I was talking to him about buying a new bike. And I was just like, well, I want, I want to get a bike that's, that's custom made for, for criterium racing. I want a bike that's, you know, light, but it's still like edgy and it, and it can accelerate really, really quickly. And Zach just looked at me and he goes, don't waste money on carbon bikes. Look at an aluminum bike. Do not be afraid to look at the aluminum bike. You raced it when you were in college. It was perfect for you then. You don't need to go and drop. 20,000 or $15,000 on some insane frame. You guys ride vinyl. Uh, that's actually the name of the, of the manufacturer. It's not the material that they use, (laughs) but there's something unique about vinyl because not a lot of people know about it. So you as an ambassador for the organization and as a guy who's riding the bike, tell us about this crit machine. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. Before this, this is our second year on um, vinyl, and I've never not been on a carbon frame since I started racing. Like that's that's how I started, and that's what everyone tells you to get. And I feel like the biggest thing I would say with the carbon frame, I just like, oh, this is so stiff, so stiff. This is so good, such a good crit bike. But then you go and crash once, you have to replace your frame. And uh, that gets super expensive if you don't have sponsors for that. So a vinyl is aluminum bike, it's super affordable. Like my last year bike, uh, I mean, crits, you're, you're prone to crash. Like I have a few dents in my top tube and it's totally fine. Like that was a carbon bike, then you're pretty screwed. So like, honestly, I feel like this is stiff, if not stiffer than a carbon bike. And like the acceleration and the power transfer is just like mind blowing. I feel like when I'm done racing, I don't think I'd ever go back to a carbon bike. Well, I, a part of the transfer and stiffness has to come from the Envy wheels. Yeah, that does help. And and I think the fact that you're also using about the deepest section wheels anybody <laughs> can find out there. I want to kind of close the loop here on vinyl because in 2020, you guys did something unique. You didn't force or compel or in enforce strict rigidity as far as frame color. The guys were given their opportunity to pick the color bike that they wanted to have. I can't remember if you went with red and your your brother went with blue or who went with chrome or how it all worked, but tell us about how non-uniformity actually creates a lot of creativity and personal identity on the team. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty... Awesome. And for Dylan and Vinyl to allow us to all pick our own frame colors is pretty special. I mean, us to be able to like express ourselves and choose like any color that we wanted, I think it's pretty cool. So I went with like 
Candy Apple Red. Um, Kevin, this is the legit name of the blue. It's called Playboy Blue. And then a few guys went with Chrome and White. And like, we all get to stand out and be our own person. Though I think that might bite Kevin and I in the butt having two different colored bikes is now people are going to be able to uh, identify the difference between the two of us in the race. But um, yeah, I think it's really, really awesome that uh, Dylan and Vinyl let us do that. How is it to be on the same team at the top level with your brother? Because it's not, there's not a lot of family who could do that. And I think that that has been tried a lot by a lot of different people to certain degrees of not success. I mean, can David Vanderpool really, you know, hold a candle to Matthew? <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> what's it like actually racing right next to and alongside your brother? That is a good point. I mean, Kevin and I have obviously raced on the same team almost every single year besides the the one year I went and raced in Australia and then that was Kevin's first year, um, with team cliff bar. And, um, I still remember coming back for nationals and doing dairy lands with my Australian team and racing against Kevin. And I just like absolutely hated it. I mean, obviously being twin brothers, I knew exactly what kind of move he was about to do or what kind of attack. But uh, I mean, honestly, am, am I going to pull him back? Like, no, even though he's on a different team, but so like, that plays into our favor being on the same team is like, I know exactly what he's going to do without having to talk on the radio. And that's a given a lot of the guys on the team, we're going to talk on the radio and communicate. But like when it comes down to Kevin and I, I feel like we don't need to talk. And unless he decides to uh, try to sprint me at the finish line for some reason, but um, that's about it. Cause he's never ever done that while you guys have been on the same team, right? You're always on the same page, right? Yeah, exactly. I don't I don't see him. I don't know why the hell he would try to uh, sprint me, but um, uh, just that one time. But yeah, that was about it. <laughs> okay, tell us about the one time, because clearly grudges are held. <laughs> uh, this is just at uh, one of the local early season Colorado races, one of the more iconic local races. And Kevin got off the road solo super early on. And then I think halfway through the race, I bridged up across solo and Kevin and I made a massive gap and it was clearly that we were going to stay to the line. And so obviously, I don't know, I feel like everyone else's idea, even if it is your teammate, you're going to cross the line, you know, holding hands together and, you know, make it look all picturesque. And I still remember coming out of that last roundabout with like uh, 200, 250 meters to go, just ready to sit up and kind of coast across the line with Kevin and for some reason, you know, he decides to start sprinting. Um, and I'm like, oh, hell no. <laughs> Not going to let him do this. So I still remember getting a lot of grief for people that were watching the race. Like, why the heck are you guys sprinting each other? And Kevin's like, oh, no, I just still want to beat him. But <laughs> So who ended up winning that day? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for bringing that up. I did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and how was that conversation in the car on the way home? Oh, no, it was good. It was just all fun. Like, I mean... I mean, honestly, surprisingly, Kevin and I aren't too competitive. Like, if he wins, I'm stoked. If I win, he's stoked. But obviously, we're going to make each other work for it, I, I guess. Chris Stewart, for the end here of the show, let's talk about some of the activations that you guys have done this year. Let's throw crit racing aside for a, a second here, because 2020 has been a very strange year. Uh, we haven't had the opportunity to race but you guys haven't stopped working. I've been following your social media and the activations that you've been doing, and it looks like you guys are just straight up having a lot of fun. What are some of the things that you guys have been doing this year to stay engaged, to stay in the view of the public? This year, mostly, I would say I got into... I built a gravel bike last winter around this time. And then with the race season kind of falling apart, I was like, oh, I'm going to do these rides now that I was going to do in the fall. And I just started doing all these amazing rides, huge 130 mile gravel rides from McCall back to my house or going out to Trinity Lakes and back in a day, which was like 140 miles and brought some, a couple friends that I typically don't ride with because we're on different teams. And even though it's small Boise, it's, it's got its own little clicks, you know, but the gravel I think is really 
it's like the safe place for everybody in the road community. It's like this new thing for all of us. So we're learning together. We're not, nobody has the ego of like, I'm a pro gravel racer. We're just like, we're just going out and doing these awesome rides out in these beautiful spots. What is it about gravel that that's so attractive to, to us? For me, it's, it's not been explored. So all these new places that you haven't been, or like when you were a kid and the first time you were able to go outside your block and you went to a new block, like this is, we've rode all the roads around here a bunch, you know, we've done the mountain bike trails around here, but the gravel stuff, all these fire roads, no, I haven't done any of that. So all this new exploring and connecting stuff and making bigger loops and smaller loops. And it's just, it's amazing. And just all the different things you get to see along the way. Tell us about the opportunity that you had with the gingers, with Zach, with Dylan to one of the highest peaks in, in Idaho. There were video cameras, there was documentation, there was definitely the occasional Sierra Nevada that was involved in it. Tell us about that. It was awesome. So we started at my house and then we just headed out on the green belt up to the the dam and then we started gravel out in the middle of Idaho and we're just doing some big rollers. We probably like a five mile climb, big descent. And then we had this like wall of a climb on day one that totally cracked Zach. Like the photos were amazing looking back now, but you see this forest service tower for like looking for fires and it is so far away and it's like probably 6,000 feet above you at that point. And you are just grinding away. It's hot. It was, it was miserable at points, but then we like filled up with water out of this fresh, uh, Creek that felt amazing. We're like splashing our faces and refilling our water bottles. It, it was so cool. And then we get up top and ate some food at a Sierra Nevada. And then we, cruised down like five miles for the first night to end. And we're at this beautiful lake and had two moose swim across the lake while we were all sitting there. There was bald eagles uh, flying around, like fishing themselves. Do you think that 2020 and the way that it oddly worked out helped kind of liberate you a little bit, make you a little bit more free to, to take a chance like that? Definitely. Yeah, I... I was talking with my wife today and we were talking about how 2020 was different, but it wasn't bad. It was still a great year. A lot of us see what we lost in 2020. You know, you lost a race season. You, you know, you you lost a lot of your freedom to to go places and to do things and to see people. Some of us have lost loved ones. And so all we see is the negative, but what we've seen with the activations that you guys have done, whether is that gravel event, whether it was the the work that you did with vinyl and and getting out the vote, I, I see things that are gained. Tell us about the idea of viewing things from a perspective of abundance as opposed to from loss. Yeah, I mean, with one door being closed doesn't mean that other doors can't open for you. You still have the time to do stuff, so you might as well get out. I mean, explore your own backyard that you haven't done, like rides in or take a quick day trip somewhere where you're able to go check out new things. I mean, we were doing it all summer long and it was great. joining us on another episode of the show. We are a proud member of the Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows. Today's episode was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly, but with exceptionally large amounts of help from Dylan, the director sportif for Cliff Bar. We've got a great episode coming up next week, which will feature the women of the Levine Law Group as they discuss their decision not to race their bikes this year until they've all been vaccinated. 
it's an important conversation and kind of a follow-on discussion to the one we had with Connor Dellenbank of Good Guys Racing. So please stop by again here next week for more stories from our Criterium Nation. Wow, what an episode. That was amazing. When that one person said that thing and then the other person totally like set them straight. Oh man, that was great. I'm gonna have to go back and listen to that again. But hey, since I have your attention now, hello, cyclocross friends, new friends and old friends and soon to be friends. My name's Bill. I host another show on the Wide Angle Podium Podcast Network. It's called Cyclocross Radio. And we talk to the biggest stars in cyclocross and even the medium stars in cyclocross and some of the soon to be stars in cyclocross. We also have a panel discussion we call the Media Pit with my buddy Zach and Michael, where we go over all of the new rules that might be coming out and the calendar situations and races that happen. It's a great time. It's a great conversation. We built an amazing community that we want you to be part of. So go to WideAnglePodium.com, become a member there, then go to your favorite podcast app and subscribe to Cyclocross Radio. Do it. Do it now cyclocross friends.